0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Nina McConaughey, author of the short story collection Cowboys and East Indians, which won the High Plains Book Award and the 2014 Penn Open Book Award. McConigley grew up in Casper, Wyoming, with an Irish father and Indian mother. Most of her characters reflect her cultural background and struggle with identity and belonging, as well as assert their independence and defy expectations. Her stories take place in varied locations, including India, Wyoming neighborhoods, Plains and oil fields, highway motels, kitchen tables, and college campuses. We began the discussion talking about the autobiographical nature of her stories. I asked her if she set out to reflect her life in her fiction when she started writing.
1: No, because I don't actually think my life is all that interesting, but I think that certainly, I guess I really do follow the adage of like writing what you know. And for me, I think growing up in a place where I was so different, I became very fretful about my identity and who I was. And I think I think about identity all the time. And I feel like in a way with writing short stories in particular, you have all these outlets to like work out that anxiety and um, work out sort of thinking about identity and thinking about what it means to be you know, of color in a place like Wyoming where it's not diverse at all. I don't know if, if like writing is a form of therapy for me, but it's certainly a way of thinking about um, my Indianness, or my hat—I mean, I'm half Indian, really. I guess my dad is Indian, but I certainly look Indian. But I think it's just been a way for me to work out a lot of my, a lot of my angst over the over the last of my life, I guess.
0: So your story collection—it's a lot of biracial or pure Indians, people who are in foreign situations, or just someone or many people who are just different than the world surrounding them. Did you feel that a lot as a kid? I mean,
1: I'm pretty, I mean, I actually am very social and I think I, I have a lot of friends and I I don't, I don't want to paint this picture that I was like, you know, sitting in a corner by myself, but I think I was definitely aware of the difference all the time. Um, I certainly growing up just didn't have, I mean, I've said this before, but like, I I just never saw a reflection of myself besides my sister and, um, and the cousins who live here. Otherwise. I never knew anybody like me. And I also, when I was a kid, I was really self-conscious that our house smelled like curry and that we ate with our hands. And I think I was really aware of all of that. Again, I don't think I was really unhappy, but I guess I was just trying to work out, like, what it means to me to be Indian. Especially, I think, maybe those of us who are biracial, too. Like, really, you feel this sort of pull between both sides. And, yeah, I probably spend too much time thinking about it, but I (laughs) I do think about it a lot.
0: So, how was that in terms of your relationship with your dad? Did you feel like he couldn't understand you, or that you were experiencing all these things that he couldn't because he looks like everyone else in Wyoming?
1: Yes and no. I mean, it's funny because my dad—I'm very close, very close with both my parents—and um, in some ways, you know, growing up, my parents didn't have any family in the U.S. So, growing up, when we would travel, we would go. My grand—my Indian grandparents had passed away before I was born, so. We would always go see my dad's family, so we would go to Ireland. Or my dad's my my grandmother lives in Australia, so we would go see her. I only went to India for the first time when I was twenty-three. So growing up, in some ways, like I was much closer to my Irish family. My mom and dad always uh, my uh, I read a lot of Enid Blyton, who's a, you know I guess a British writer, but a children's writer. But I grew up sort of hearing fairy tales and, and thinking, I mean, I, I think in some ways I was much more connected to my Irishness when I was little, to be honest. And I think I'm actually a lot like my dad. My dad and I are very, a lot more quiet and introverted compared to my to my mom and sister who are much more, they're much more outgoing. But definitely, I mean, I've had some conversations with my dad. I, I think he's really empathetic. And certainly my parents married in a time when it wasn't 100% socially acceptable. They were been married for 40 something years. Um. So I think my dad's sensitive to a lot of that, but I think sometimes he thinks I maybe look for hurt when hurt doesn't exist, or he maybe thinks I'm a little too sensitive, which I just think if you're used to being in the majority, you don't really understand that's like what it feels like to always be kind of a little bit different. It's interesting because my mom and I actually, I think, butt heads more about race stuff because, you know, she was a legislator in Wyoming and she's just so much more Self-confident than I am, I think, and so she often is just like, "Why are you, you know, why are you spreading about this?" I think in some ways my mom doesn't understand as much as my dad
0: does. In your first story, which is called "Melting," mm-hmm. the very first sentence is, "We were the wrong kind of Indians living in Wyoming," and then it follows, "There were were Arapaho, Shoshone, even some Crow, and then there was us." I was just wondering about that. It's such a potent theme throughout the book for all of the stories that take place in Wyoming. And you are living in a land of Indians where Mm -hmm. just the origin of calling Native Americans Indians relates Mm -hmm. back to your culture. Mm -hmm. But tell me a little bit about that. How often did it come up in your in your real life and growing um, up? Yeah. And the idea Um, of that in your book.
1: I always am interested in perception and the way people look at things. And I think that growing up, certainly because there wasn't a context of people from India in Wyoming, people would often ask what tribe I was. And also because I'm biracial, I don't look totally Indian. I always had the answer, you know, we're dot, not feather Indians, which I think a lot of a lot of Indians say, um, East Indians say. I, I, and, and also like in, in school Christmas pageants, like often I was often like Mary during the holiday season because Mary was. Middle Eastern and um that idea that I was often misidentified. Um and especially when I don't even really know what my identity is, I think I I'm really interested in that. I think that's really the funny like, funny to me a little bit that people that people think that because actually if you've seen I have friends that are Rafaho or Shoshone Indians and like we don't I don't look anything like them but people really want to know where you're from or want to place you really quickly and I, I always fall in that in between space I don't I'm not I don't know what I am.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Nina McConaugly, author of the short story collection, Cowboys and East Indians. In your title story, Cowboys and East Indians, basically the premise of that is that there's an Indian-American woman who ends up, she's in a college town and she's driving down the street and she spots some, some Indians who need a ride Mm -hmm. and they're from India and they're going to the school and she sort of wants to befriend them and she Mm -hmm. wants to be with them but she doesn't even really know how to put on a sari Mm -hmm. and um, she's trying to sort of um, get in their good graces by giving them Mm -hmm. rides and becoming their friends but they really don't want to be her friend Mm -hmm. and um, I think there's many stories in here where you have examples of someone either in Wyoming or in India who's a Uh character that is Indian American who wants to bridge that gap between Mm -mm. her history. So can you talk a little bit about that experience for you and then that experience of your characters who look physically like these people they want to be with, but they're not?
1: For me, that comes out of the first time I ever went to India. I remember when I was twenty. I was 23, so I was, I was pretty old. I remember waking up the first morning and walking out onto the street and standing on the street and looking around and thinking, this is the first time in my remembered life that I am not in the minority. And it was a very strong feeling for me. And then really quickly, there was a wave after that of, and yet I have nothing in common. You know, like it was, I really felt, if anything, I felt a little like, oh my gosh, there's auto rickshaws and, and motorcycles and cows. and." I was um, you know, if anything, my Wyomingness kicked in massively, and I was like, oh, I need space. So for me, I actually have a lot of Indian friends, and I um, I love the Indian Student Association here at University of Wyoming. and um, but there always is a little bit of longing and a little bit of looking in and wanting to be part of something that I, I don't think I'm exactly part of. And I think for my characters, maybe I amplified that a little bit more of them feeling a little bit removed and trying to, you know, try to discover... The, I mean, I don't know this idea. I mean, we all, I think, to some degree, try to discover our roots, no matter what. I mean, I think a lot of us look back on our grandparents or people that have come from somewhere else, and we, we want to understand it and know it. But sometimes that understanding and knowing can also make you feel really isolated, and, and like, it makes you, I think, feel your difference even more so. I'm obsessed with the idea of what's, what's an authentic version of something and what's the real something my experience of being Indian is just as valid as, you know, someone who grew up in India because I certainly grew up eating Indian food and hearing the language, hearing Tamil. And, you know, it was a different experience, but it was, it's my own and it's real. But I think for a long time, I always worried, like, am I authentic? enough? Am I, am I, am I, I don't really know what that means. And I think that, I think, again, it can be applicable to Wyoming too. It's like, I don't know if the authentic Wyoming is the Tetons or Yellowstone or
0: some cowboy on
1: horse, but, because my experience is much more in oil and gas town. But I think they're all really valid and real experiences.
0: In one of your stories called White Wedding, where Mm -hmm. the main character was faced with her dying mother, basically after the mother died, she had a sister who had moved away who came back for her wedding to Wyoming, and it was the main character and her father. And there's a, a line in there that says... She's talking about sort of her life versus her sister's life and seeing her sister back there with this whole wedding party. And she says, staying was the most Indian thing I could do. Tell me about that line.
1: I mean, to be a dutiful daughter is like a really, that's very Indian. I mean, family comes first and your family and living in an extended family situation is very common. And your family is is everything. I teach Indian literature here at the University of Wyoming and I think it's really hard for my students to wrap their head around like that, you know, a son will live with his mother and his, with his wife and, and, you know, everyone lives together. You, I think you think of yourself less of an individual in India and more as part of the community and, you know, that's why arranged marriages are, they they, they tend to work because it's not so much a marriage between two people, it's between two families, it's, it's a very family-oriented society and um, for that character... You know, she wants to, she's trying to hold on to being Indian so much in the story and she's scared her mom's going to die and she's not going to put a sari on it, she's not going to be able to cloak and she's not going to, all this stuff is going to die if her mom dies, but really she is a good, she's the best Indian girl because she stays home after her mother dies and, and lives with her father and takes care of the house. And I think that is really about the most Indian thing you could possibly do. My own mother had cancer and I moved home for a good chunk of my 20s to be with her because my dad you know, he's a geologist. He's out in the field a lot. I I knew for me personally that that was the best thing I could do for my family was to, to be home and to be with my parents. And it I, it didn't even occur to me that I would have my own life or that I would that I wouldn't even. I mean, I just it didn't even I didn't even think twice before I moved home.
0: One of the things that I noticed in a lot of your stories was the idea of clothing and how clothing mm-hmm. identified you particularly with the sari. I mean, for one, the sari is so emblematic of mm-hmm. of that part of the world. Many stories, there's one story where um, a young woman, her mom is dying, and she wants mm-hmm. to be buried in a sari. And at first, the mom worries that she doesn't know how to put the sari on her, so they practice. But mm-hmm. in the end, when after she died, she couldn't do it. There's Mm -hmm. a white woman who enters a contest for um, sewing an outfit for a doll. And the the winner of the doll contest was an Indian woman who dressed her doll in a sari. Mm -hmm. And then probably the most interesting story about a sari is where a woman goes for tea to her husband's boss's house and meets him and his wife, and learns that the husband is a cross-dresser in Wyoming Mm -hmm. and really wants to wear a sari, and so she brings these saris over. So I was just wondering about the sari in general. It seems to occupy your mind, whether consciously Mm -hmm. or unconsciously.
1: You know, it's so funny because it's so unconscious. I was speaking in California in the spring, and these two students were presenting on my book, and they they were the first people that ever— drew my attention to the fact that clothing is so important in, in all the stories and they did a, a whole like really beautiful critical talk on, on how clothes inform, inform identities in my book and I I sat there literally thinking I never ever thought that consciously like clearly this is somewhere in the back of my head this is somewhere that I'm worried about and um, again I think it ties back to I'm always thinking about identity and the quickest way we form identity is clothing and if I put on a sari or if I wear, if I wear a uh, salarcomy, people treat me and talk to me differently. It, it's just the nature of, I guess, being also in Wyoming. Um, it was recently, it was Diwali a few weeks ago and I was wearing a sari and I was, I went to Safeway and um, you know, people, <laughs> the cashier who I see, actually I feel like I see her often was talking to me really loud and slow. And I was just like, Oh, I I actually understand English, but, you know, it is so iconic of, of an Indian woman, and and, and it's so beautiful and so graceful. And and I probably am a little wistful about them about saris because I don't wear saris. Al- I wear them some. I wear them sometimes, but I don't wear them enough that I would say I feel crazy comfortable in them. When I'm wearing a sari, I'm very aware of it. And um, but it is it is surprising to me when I put on a sari, and I put a bindi on my forehead. Like I. I do feel a little transformed. I do feel like I I am Indian in a way that I'm, you know, most days I'm wearing Carhartts and fleece.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Nina McConaughey, author of the short story collection, Cowboys and East Indians. You know, you were talking earlier about how when you you went to India when you were 23, and then I read that you, I don't know if it was when you were 23 or later, you went to work for a book. Publishing house mm-hmm. there. What did you learn about your Indianness in India?
1: In some ways, I think I learned more how a lot of ways that I wasn't Indian, which was that I'm so like spatially like like to be alone and be not talk to people for days and be sort of a, a little bit more of a hermit. um But I also the sense of again of family and community and that idea that you're sort of all together and and the house you know, when I'm with my family there, it's very, I kind of love that they don't let me be a hermit. They don't let me, um, they they, they sort of push me. And I think Indian culture took a while, but I feel very at home in India. And I think part of it is that everybody there, I don't want to say this without sounding reductive, because it sounds so, I feel like people are just happy in a way that I don't feel is quite the same in the U.S. And I, I feel like there's a kind of joy to, to daily living, and um, I think I'm a pretty orderly and, and maybe a little bit too too orderly of a person. And you know, living in India, you you can't depend on anything. The train is going to be late. Who knows if you're going to? I don't know. I, I mean, I remember I saw peanut butter at the store when I first moved to India. Then I never saw it again for a year, and I always was like, why was there peanut butter that one time? And you kind of embrace the philosophy of what to do. I mean, there's just nothing you can do to stop certain things. And the house I lived in flooded several times during the monsoon, and it was just like you almost have to laugh it off because if you are trying to worry about things, it just it doesn't work. Like, you're going to be miserable. And so I learned to, I think, let go of a lot of things in India in a way that I really loved, that I felt like much more, like, less worried about time and order. And, you know, there are power cuts all the time, and you just don't care. It's kind of like, yeah, it's fun. I think India brought out a lot in me about just letting go a bit of, of, of trying to be in control every moment of everything, because you, you just, good Lord, if you try to be in control in India, you'll probably kill yourself. I don't, I mean, there's just, you kind of have to throw caution to the wind a bit more, and I think that that was really good for me, because I think I'm otherwise a little too structured. <laughs>
0: Tell me about your influences. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer?
1: I really do think of A Passage to in India as the perfect novel. I, I absolutely love it in terms of craft and in terms of just story. And um, I, I think the beginning of the book is actually very, very beautiful. So I thought I would read a bit from Passage to India. This is from part one, which is called Moss. Except for the Marabar cave, and they are 20 miles off, The city of Chandrapur presents nothing extraordinary. Edged rather than washed by the river Ganges, it trails for a couple of miles along the bank, scarcely distinguishable from the rubbish it deposits so freely. There are no bathing steps on the riverfront, as the Ganges happens to not be holy here. Indeed, there is no riverfront. And bazaars shut out the wide and shifting panorama of the stream. The streets are mean, the temples ineffective, And though a few fine houses exist, they are hidden away in the gardens or down alleys where whose filth deters all but the invited guests. Chandrapur was never large or beautiful, but 200 years ago it lay on the road between the Upper India, then Imperial, and the Sea, and the fine houses date from that period. The zest for decoration stopped in the 18th century, nor was it ever democratic. There is no painting and scarcely any carving in the bazaar. The very wood seems made of mud, the inhabitants of mud moving. So abased, so monotonous, is everything that meets the eye. that when the Ganges comes down, it might be expected to wash the extremes back into the soil. Houses do fall, people are drowned and left rotting, but the general outline of the town persists, swelling here, shrinking there, like some low but indestructible form of life. And that's the opening paragraph, and I just, to me, I just, I really, I love that. (laughs) I, I love it.
0: Tell me a little bit more about why you think it's a perfect book.
1: I, again, I think it 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 speaks to many of my obsessions, which is what is real and what's authentic. And I think the characters are always walking around asking that in the in the in the book. And there's another there's another very small passage. It's it's like a throwaway line in in Passage to India. Um, he's a tiny character that comes in for one scene. This character named Mr. Harris that comes in and. Um, He's a chauffeur of one of the, um, actually of a, of a uh, Indian nala, and there's this line that where they the people in the in the scene speed off, and Mr. Harris, this character is sitting here, and it says they sped off, and Mr. Harris, after a reproachful glance, squatted down upon his hands. When English and Indians were both present, he grew self-conscious because he did not know to whom he belonged. Pro- for a little, he was sexed by the opposite currents in his blood. Then they blended, and he belonged to no one but himself. And he's an Anglo-Indian character, and he's a biracial character. And I always kind of love that little tiny again. It's a moment in that book, um, but I think that all the characters in that book are trying to find themselves, and no one really, no one really does. And I, um, I think if you want to talk about how cultures meet and how they by mutual understanding. Um, This book is just, it's so problematic in this book, and yet it's also just such a good mystery because you never really know what happens. You don't really have a sense of what happens in this book. Like they go into these caves and you don't really know what happens in the cave. And I think that often is the way history and the way our lives are. We don't exactly, it's not all explicable. And when I tried to write the very last, the very last story in my collection is, is called Curating Your Life, and I actually based a lot of that story on Passage to India. Um, in Passage to India, there's a cave, and in that um, in that story, they go into a haunted house that has a cave. There are lines that are exactly from Passage to India in that story, um, boom, boom, and um, the echo in the cave. And I I guess it was my own sort of sense of East and West are not necessarily going to meet. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's... It's something I think about all
0: the time. How about something you wrote? It could be something that you felt like was difficult for you to write or something you succeeded at.
1: I, I think I, I really like the end of
0: um, the This is the
1: end of Cowboys and in East Indians, the title story in the book, because I think that character is really trying to, to connect and, and she's not really finding connection. And um and also it, it speaks to the, the idea of um, exoticism, which I, I think is really interesting, um, so she's she's just left a party where there's a lot of other Indians and or a Diwali celebration where there's some other Indians. And um, she's she's sort of walking on her own, thinking about how she connects with these people. And um, the, the passage is this, thinking about her boyfriend. And she says, the night after Cal told me he didn't see me as brown, he backpedaled. The next day he told me I was exotic and that's what he liked. I didn't know what was worse, exotic. Every year in Mike's practice, her father. Exotic pets would come in, pets who'd not adapted, alligators, snakes, hedgehogs, sugar gliders, monkeys, all kinds of birds, lorikeets and macaws, cockatoos and galahs. Mike wasn't always sure what to do with them and he would make calls to bigger clinics asking for help. Sometimes I would help hold them while he inspected them looking for the hurt. People should not keep exotic pets in this place, he would say. And then one holiday when I was watching horses, I saw this llama in the barn. Ranches all over Wyoming had started using them. Some say they guard sheep better than dogs. The climate doesn't bother them. They're loners and need little care. One guy up in lust in Port from South America. It always made me laugh to pass a pasture and see a llama in the field. The sheep would usually be in a little circle, the llama out a bit away from them. The llama, like a right angle, propped up next to the geometry of ranching. And here was one in the barn. I walked over to the creature and began to change the water. It had a mean underbite and a thin face. The next thing I knew, I was covered in warm vomit. Mike later told me it was spit. Instead of being angry, I respected it. As I walked, I thought about that llama who I later watched watched out in the corral while the ag class was learning about that kind of sheep management. It was always away from the group, looking and watching. It watched the sheep with a detached interest, but those sheep didn't dare move. People stick to their own kind, and when they don't have a kind, then they're exotic. I turned around and walked back towards the community center. The girls would need a ride home. I stopped outside. Ronnie laughed with ash, bunny ate her chocolate, Vidya and Suparma huddled with a group of older girl graduate students. I stood outside until I realized I only had a tank top on and it was freezing, but I still didn't move. The light shone out of the windows. I gazed in at them and watched. Yeah, that passage to me and that end of that story sort of speaks to, I think, the way not only that character feels, but I think a little bit the way I feel. You know, I may not be part of that group, but I'm going to be really damn protective of that group. So I I like that idea.
0: And was it hard for you to write or you just feel like you got it? Um, I really wanted to have a llama in the story. (laughs) i had always
1: seen llamas and thought, how can I put them in a story? Um, But it was hard to write because I think there was that moment of realizing that you are separate, that I may look like people, but I, I may look like these you know, for that character, she may look like those girls, but she's she's not like those girls. She's grown up on a ranch, and she's very, very different. And um, but yet again, there's still that tenderness and that protectiveness, which I feel. Yeah, it's important. So I feel like that's you know, they're still her family in a way. They're still who she she feels connected to them. And I think that's I think that's maybe the way I feel. Like I may not 100% be I may not be 100% Indian. I'm not 100% Indian. You know, only 50% Indian. But I. Feel incredibly proud and, and protective, and and that is that is a huge part of my identity.
0: And where do you write?
1: Oh, you know, I mostly write in bed, which is I'm getting too old to do that because I um, I actually for the first time bought a desk this past year. Um, but all pretty much all of my short story collection was written in bed. Um, it's I I tend to work late at night, so I just prop myself up and, and write in some pillows.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I
1: definitely drive out to the prairie. I I feel, if I'm feeling stuck or I'm feeling um, like I need a break, just seeing a lot of horizon and mountains is, is really, like, balm to my soul.
0: <laughs> and who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Strangely, my parents. Um, my parents, I think, are my ideal reader, my dad in particular. I think about them as my audience when I'm writing. And... Um, because they're such great readers and you know I think they also have a balance that they know me well enough that they can like also call me on some of the autobiography I use but they also can can read it and they understand this place and they they're just disconnected to here so I, I really I value their feedback massively.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: You know my book was rejected I think close to 20 times before it was taken I just had to let it go and just be like either, you know, you're doing this for the work and because you feel like you have stories to tell or or you're doing this to get a lot of approval from other people. And it I mean, obviously I don't wanna work in a vacuum and I do want my books I do want my books read and I want stuff published, but I think with rejection it's just so part and parcel of, of this life if you're a writer that it really I really have learned to be pretty I mean, considering I'm a pretty sensitive soul, I, I feel like with rejection Partly because I've worked as an editor in magazines too, and I know it's so being subjective. Half the time it isn't that it isn't a good piece, it's that it doesn't fit or it doesn't work or that moment. So I feel like I'm actually pretty zen about maybe I'm very what to do about rejection. You can't really, I just keep sending it out. You know, you don't need a million people to fall in love with it. You just need one editor or one person that likes the story.
0: So just need, just need the one. And what is your favorite word? You know, I
1: was thinking about that. I've never thought about it too much, about what it, what would be my favorite word. But I, I really like the word erstwhile. <laughs> I don't know why. I think it's just a funny word. And I like the word brood. Maybe because I'm a brooding person half the time. But I like those words.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest was Nina McConigley, author of the short story collection Cowboys and East Indians. You can follow First Draft on Facebook, just look for First Draft on Aspen Public Radio and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin, thanks for listening.